The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way. And that's with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts and help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversations, and their tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching, so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription at babbel.com slash bluewire. That's 60% off at babbel.com slash bluewire, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash bluewire. Rules and restrictions apply. You don't want it. You don't need it. But you're going to get it anyway. The Kevin Sheehan Show. Here's Kevin. We have a guest uh, scheduled on the show today coming up in just a few minutes. Mark Ein, one of the real successful entrepreneurs in the history of this city. He's the owner of the Washington Castles. He owns the City Open. He is the man responsible for bringing Rafa to the City Open on July 31st, later this month, uh, for the City Open Tennis Tournament. Mark's an interesting guy. Um, it's been years since I've talked to Mark. Um, had him on the radio show a couple of times years ago, um, but it'll be good to catch up with him and get uh, how this happened and what's sort of in the offing, who else will be there um, uh, to play uh, against Rafa Uh, at the end of the month. So we'll do that with him. I wanted to start with the Home Run Derby last night. I really enjoyed it. I usually don't enjoy those things, but I enjoyed the Home Run Derby. First of all, the Otani show was really the the reason you probably had a decent television audience, I'm guessing. I've not seen the TV numbers yet on this, but I'm assuming that they did pretty well last night um, with Otani making his debut in the Home Run Derby, and then I think the All-Star Game tonight will probably do pretty well uh, also. But uh, the the showdown between Soto and Otani was really dramatic. Um, Soto takes him out in the first round after they tie at 22-22. Then they go to extras, you know, using soccer jargon, extra time. They're still tied after extra time, and they go to penalty kicks. The best of three swings, and Soto goes yard on all three of them, and Otani's first swing is into the dirt uh, with a ground ball, and he's out. And Soto moved on where he was um, eventually uh, beaten uh, by um, the eventual winner. Uh, Pete Alonzo, who, by the way, wins it for a second straight time. And I will tell you that I think as exciting as the Soto-Otani moment was, I think watching Alonzo last night was unbelievable. Um, It's funny because right before the Derby started last night, there was nothing on television. Remember, you know, tonight and tomorrow night and then Wednesday night really are the slowest typically in a normal year on a normal um, sports calendar. They're the slowest nights of the year. The Wednesday after the All-Star game is the one night every year, not this year, 
uh, because of the NBA Finals still going on. But it's the one day out of every year where there is no sporting event of the four major professional sports. It's the only day of the year that there's no football game, no hockey game, no basketball game, no baseball game. And that's pretty amazing um, that that is the one night of the year that you don't have that. Um, but not this year because the NBA Finals resume tomorrow night. And then baseball picks up on Thursday night. I think there's one game. I think Red Sox-Yankees are on Thursday night, and then everybody else is back at it on Friday. By the way, the Nats open up a three-game homestand um, out of the All-Star break against the San Diego Padres. Not an easy way to start the second half of the season when you limped into the end of the first half. And by the way, technically we're beyond the first half. You know, the Nats are 42 and 47. They played 89 games. They played eight games more than half of their schedule. Um, but they come out after that, you know, brutal stretch of four losses in a row, nine losses in their last 11, with three more against a great opponent in the Padres before. This schedule lightens up a little bit with the Marlins, who have actually been playing better. Then they get a set with the Orioles at Camden Yards, and then a big set with Philadelphia, who's in front of them in the standings right now. In fact, they play eight games against the Phillies between, I think, the last week of July and the end of the first week of August. Um, Anyway... Uh, I enjoyed the home run derby, and Alonzo was amazing. Right before it started last night, with no other sports on, uh, my intention was to watch it. And I had my youngest son at home, and he's like, let's watch the home run derby. I'm like, sure, why not? Let's see what Otani does. And because he was matched up against Soto in the first round, um, you know, there was intrigue there. Well, right before the broadcast, I guess in the pre-home uh, run derby show, Jessica Jessica Mendoza is her name. She's been, you know, on the Sunday night ESPN tele- telecast with Kirchin and others um, and part of that for a while. I think she does a really good job. She was asked by whomever it was that was anchoring and said, oh, Alonzo's going to win this. He's the one that wants it badly and has a strategy and has the experience. And I don't know what it is about the way she pitched Pete Alonzo. But it literally sold me, and I was just about to lob in on Pete Alonzo at plus 500 to win it. Otani was the favorite at plus 240, Um, and then Alonzo was at like plus 500. I didn't do it, and I think I just said to myself, good God, if you bet on the home run derby, you really have an issue. So I decided to pass on it, but I shouldn't have. He was clearly the best, but it was entertaining. And the All-Star game tonight, especially with Scherzer um, starting, will be, um, will be uh, you know, a decent watch as well. I'm not big into these derbies. I'm not big into All-Star, All-Star Saturday night in the NBA. Not into that at all. But, uh, yeah, uh, I, enjoyed, um, I enjoyed that last night. There are three other things I wanted to get to quickly before we uh, have a conversation with Mark Ein. Number one is today is the one-year anniversary of the Washington Redskins officially retiring 
the Redskins name um, and, you know, deciding to move on from it. And it was 10 days after that, July 23rd, that they announced that they would be calling themselves the Washington football team for the 2020 season. It's amazing that that a year has gone by that quickly. but there was so much other stuff that came after the name news, which really was, in so many ways, the bombshell for the hardcore longtime football fan in most of us. Um, but it was just a couple of days later that we had the Washington Post um, report alleging that 15 women had endured sexual harassment. Then there would be another Post story to come. And then Snyder started making claims against former employees like Mary Ellen Blair and some of his minority shareholders, including Dwight Schar. Um, and it just was one thing after another. They hired the team president, Jason Wright. Then Rivera was diagnosed with cancer. Um, and then Alex Smith was kept on the team. And then Haskins started the season um, and was benched. And it was just one thing after another. It was really an incredible news year for the Washington football team that actually ended amazingly with a division title and a playoff game at home against the eventual uh, Super Bowl champion Tampa Bay Buccaneers. And even in the offseason, right, you know, it's been more um, stories. Uh, Alex Smith's news of being released. Um, I didn't even mention, you know, in the late season uh, about uh, Dwayne Haskins being cut. You know, the addition of Mayhew and Herney. Just one big thing after another. Then getting into free agency and signing Ryan Fitzpatrick. And then Snyder buying out his minority shareholders. And then the Wilkinson stuff. And Snyder, you know, suing Bruce Allen. And it was just, it was one thing after another. It's been a busy, busy year in the history of this team. One we're going to look back on and just be amazed at how much we were able to digest. Ultimately, as I said yesterday, as it relates to the uh, the team president's statement yesterday, it's still about football for most of us. And the bottom line is a lot of us have had a lot of fandom sucked out of us over the last two decades. And, you know, when we hear, um, you know, anything that isn't football related, it's just a reminder that over the last two decades, two decades, excuse me, this franchise has never been football focused. It's always been about other things, you know, and that reminds me, and I wanted to clear something up from yesterday when we were talking about. Jason Wright's um, interview with Nikki from Nikki Javala from the Washington Post. And I told you how sort of off-putting um, I thought it was that one of the quotes in there was him saying that he wanted Washington to be the gold standard as a sports media and entertainment company. I'm paraphrasing there, but um, I don't have it in front of me. But I, I just said this is another guy that's coming in and not getting it, that you know, this is the problem with this organization. It's always about everything other than football and winning on the football field. You know, uh, we, we, we know Bruce, one of Bruce Allen's all-time you know, blundered lines, um, we are winning off the field. Well, no one wants to hear about you winning off the field, especially when you suck so bad on it. And nobody wants to hear about sports media and entertainment aspirations. They want to hear about going 14 and three, winning the division, having the one seed and going to the Super Bowl. 
You know, this is the priority and should be the priority and is the priority for all of the great franchises. Washington is not one of them. But I I thought about it um, to a certain degree, and it's unfair to sort of put the football thing on Jason Wright. That's not why he's been brought into the organization. The day he was hired, I said on this podcast, this is awesome, and hopefully it works out for him. But the bottom line, he's got a job that's totally dependent on Ron Rivera and the football team. Because if the football team doesn't win, he's not going to increase revenue and profitability, uh, profitability period. And, you know, he's acknowledged and admitted he has no say in the football operation. He is solely here to change the business practices and hopefully the business results. But revenue depends on the football results. So when he is interviewed by Nikki for this uh, article in the Post, he's really speaking to mostly business. Now, I don't want to say it's tone deaf because I don't think it is. I think he's asked the questions and he's answered them. But, you know, I think it's one of those things where we know when anybody from the organization talks about becoming, you know, a gold standard media and entertainment company, it reeks of same old, same old. But again, his job is to figure out believe it or not, how to build a business that is losing resilient. Think about that. Think about what I just said. He's got to build a business that if the core of the business, the main product of the business loses, somehow they still gain from a business standpoint. That is quite the challenge. Wish him the best of luck with that. Ultimately, I think at its core, this is a football organization. Um, The Dallas Cowboys are an example of an organization that's done very well outside of football, but it's a different organization Dallas is. Dallas has um, a much more national, if not international, fan base. Um, The team has won more than Washington has, even though it hasn't won a lot. And in many ways, Washington's the low-rent version and has been the low-rent version of Dallas. You know, think what you want of Jerry. Jerry is much more respected around the league than Dan Snyder. Uh, For whatever uh, you think of Jerry, Jerry is a Hall of Famer. I don't think he deserved to be in the Hall of Fame personally, but whatever. Um, He is a Hall of Fame owner, and the franchise has been a very, very big success for the league despite the lack of productivity uh, on the field. They are probably the lone example of a team in the league that can thrive um, without consistent winning um, from a business standpoint. I don't know that Washington can do it. Clearly, um, they haven't, um, other than the TV revenue, the 132nd of the TV revenue that uh, everybody gets a cut of, which is why none of these NFL teams will ever go out of business. There's always the television money um, safety net. Um, but uh, I think Jason Wright has one hell of a challenge. One last thing uh, before we get to Mark Ein. Jeremy Fowler's been doing this ranking of position groups on ESPN.com um, using um, a survey of more than 50 league executives, coaches, scouts, and players to rank position groups 1 through 10 with honorable mentions. I think I mentioned last week that Chase Young was 7th on the list of edge pass rushers. Well, today he did a running back list. 
And I was thinking, you know, about the division and about the various position groups. You know, this is a very talented division at running back. You have Saquon Barkley coming back in New York. He is number six on this list of running backs. By the way, the top five were Derrick Henry, Alvin Kamara, Dalvin Cook, Nick Chubb, and Christian McCaffrey. You know, assuming McCaffrey is back. Um, Assuming Saquon Barkley is back and healthy, he's number six on this list. Uh, By the way, he was number one on the list last year. Zeke Elliott is seventh on the list. Last year he was third. And then honorable mention is Miles Sanders in Philadelphia. I think sometimes he gets overlooked in this division. He's a very good back. Miles Sanders can really, really run another Penn State guy. You know, in his first two years, he's averaged five yards per carry. He averaged 5.3 yards per carry as a rookie um, with 164 attempts. And last year, in his second year, I'm sorry, last year he averaged 5.3 yards per carry his second year on 164 attempts. Um, got hurt, missed a couple of games. His, his rookie year, he averaged 4.6 yards per carry. He's a really good back. And then you have Antonio Gibson, who I think we all have high hopes for. It's a hell of a running back division. You know, the bottom line with this division, we can compare position group to position group, coaching staff to coaching staff. It's going to come down to quarterback play. Dallas has a quarterback in Dak Prescott that many believe when he's healthy is a borderline top 10 guy. No other quarterback in the division even sniffs that level. But if any one of the other three, Daniel Jones, Ryan Fitzpatrick, or Jalen Hurts, If they sniff the top half of the league, you know, top 16, top 15 in terms of performance this year, their teams are going to do much better than sort of the national odds makers believe they'll do. Obviously, Washington is the second pick, and there have been a lot of people that have been excited about the prospects for them this year. But the bottom line is quarterback play will determine this division. Health and quarterback play will determine this division. Mark Ein will be my guest right after these words from a few of our sponsors. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. 
Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality. We welcome in uh, Mark Ein uh, to the podcast. Mark is really one of the most successful entrepreneurs from the area. Grew up in Bethesda, a BCC guy. I got a bit of an issue with that as a Whitman guy, but we'll coexist here for the next 20 minutes or so. But I've had conversations here and there over the years with Mark about tennis because he's always been into tennis. He owns the Washington Castles. He owns the City Open. And I reached out to you because I thought it was just amazing that this tournament attracted Rafa, and I think it's going to be a big deal in this town. In fact, on the radio show this morning, Mark, I, I, I guessed that this will be the toughest ticket to get for a D.C. sporting event since the World Series. Part of that is, you know, the size of the Fitzgerald Center. You know, what does it hold? 7,500, 8,000, something like that. And I think it's going to be 50% capacity. But this is going to be a very difficult ticket to get. Um, by the way, how are you? And uh, congratulations on attracting Rafa. Well, thank you, and it's great to be here, despite the fact that you went to Whitman. Um, and, uh, and uh, no, it's great for all of us who grew up in the area to come back and kind of make our own way in our own community, and it's, uh, it's always fun to talk to another native. Um, yeah, it, it's going to be an extraordinary summer, and th- what you just said is validated if you look on the ticket resale sites. Um, there it's, you know, tickets are going for thousands of dollars. Um, we are working hard to potentially increase the capacity. Um, and so I'm hopeful that the powers of be, like, I think they want to help. I, they definitely want to help. And so I am, I am hopeful that we'll be able to get some more people to come in because just the flood of calls and emails and texts of people who really want to bring their kids to come, I think has touched everyone. So hopefully, hopefully we'll have some good news. I think it'll still be the hardest ticket since the World Series, but we'll be able to get more of the people in the stands. I mean, there's nothing available on the aftermarket sites. Like, I'm just checking right now, and if there is something available, the prices are outrageous. Uh, You know, my wife who is not a sports fan, like I'm married to a person who essentially the next time she listens to my radio show or podcast will be the first time. She thinks the, the whole conversation about sports, like, and I've got three boys. She's, a, she's gotten used to it over the years, but she thinks it's a waste of time. But she sent me a text and she said, I want to see Rafa Nadal. You got to get tickets. And I'm like, this isn't going to be an easy one. But um, I, I do want to know how it came about. Before I, I want to have a conversation with you about tennis and, and, and the state of the sport in this country. But how did you get him to come here? How does something like that work? Yeah, so, look, we've laid the groundwork since we took this over in 2019 
to make this an event that the best players in the world would want to come to. It is um, the fifth biggest tennis tournament in the United States. It is, um, it's, it's one of the 25 biggest tournaments in the world. I don't think people fully appreciate that. It's a very meaningful tournament in terms of prize money and ranking points. And over the years, it's, and, and by the way, and it's been in our community for 52 years since Arthur Ashe and Donald Dell and John Harris started. I was it. a ball boy it's, in the late 70s. I was a me too. At, at the Washington Star on Clay, and I there was a Harold Solomon match that I remember, and there was a Connors match that I remember. But go ahead. Absolutely, and I did the finals with Jimmy Connors and Victor Pecci and Guillermo Villas. Wow! And 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 Fred and Fred McNair from Columbia Country Club, who was number sure. one in the world in doubles, our local hero. So yeah, those were the days, and it's been there. It's the longest running tournament in the United States at the same site. So it is a storied event. It's a very significant event. The reality is is that it needed, um, gosh, it needed an investment. It needed a fresh set of eyes. It needed a little bit of vision. And you know when the and it was frankly likely going to move out of Washington and out of our community. And when I heard that, I just said this has mattered so much not just to me but so many truly millions of people over five decades in our community that I got to do whatever I can to save it. And fortunately came together. We did it. And we invested heavily, heavily in the tournament in 19, even through last year when we didn't play. And as part of that, um, Kevin, we went to all the top players and told them about the tournament and said, it's something you should consider uh, playing in. And if you think about it for the last couple of years, you know, we had Alexander. Zverev won it a couple of years. Del Potro won it. Nishikori. So we've had top players win it. And then in 19, our final was Nick Kyrgios beating Daniel Medvedev, who's now number two in the world. And that tournament marked the beginning of his ascent. And the semifinals had Stefano Tsitsipas and Marin Cilic, who won the U.S. Open. Yeah. Tsitsipas just made. So like, just the, we've always had these top players, and we wanted to get the word out that you should come and you should do this. And so... Um, we laid the groundwork, and then Rafa was looking at the schedule. He skipped Wimbledon. He's skipping the Olympics. Obviously, now what's really exciting is with Djokovic winning the Wimbledon, there's three guys tied at the 20. record for 20 grand slams. And so everyone's figuring out, how do I best prepare for the U.S. Open to figure out who's going to take the lead? And Rafa decided that coming to Washington was how he wanted to prepare. And he called us. Um, we were obviously thrilled. You'll appreciate this, Kevin, because I said, in addition to whatever he needs to compete, I said, he's never been to Washington, actually. He's never been to the city. I said, I want to do whatever to let him show this, to see the city and make it a great experience. And his representative said, if he comes, he's coming to win the tournament, not to see the city. <laughs> I, I love that guy. So, um, and so, um, I mean, that's why I love and admire all, all three of them. But Rafa is, is, you know, is unique in that way. And, um, and so they, you know, they called last week and confirmed it. He's been training. He's in good shape. And he's thrilled to come. So this will be his return since playing at the French. He's not going to play before yeah. that. And I'm assuming nope. it'll be part of his working towards and tuning up for the Open. Yeah, and I, I don't think, I mean, when Rafa comes, he doesn't come to tune up or play a few matches. He comes, as he said, to win the tournament. I mean, he's here to win the tournament. And he, you know, he plays this level event, the 500s, all, all, you know, all the time, and he usually wins them. So um, the idea is play here. I, I have a sense of the rest of the schedule. I don't know if he's announced it. He'll play another tournament 
and then um and then play the US Open and um yeah this will be his first competitive matches on the road to hopefully the all-time record. All right. So um you've you've touched on a lot there and I'm and I'm just going to upfront say that I'm sure I got a lot wrong on the radio show the other day or on the podcast, I'm sorry, with Tommy because Mark reached out to me and he said, you know, I'd love to come on, I'd love to update you because obviously we were winging it. And look, here has been my perception, and, and you have changed it, and I've done a lot of reading over the weekend um, that obviously um, changed it. I, you know, I remember – Growing up, you know, not only being a ball boy that one summer, but going to this tournament because I love tennis. I played tennis. I had a, a lot of, you know, people in my life that were into tennis. So every summer, you know, we hoofed it down to 16th and Kennedy for at least a night or two to watch the tournament. And, and, and I remember the tournament from, you know, going from a clay court tournament with a lot of South American, you know, players to the hardcore, uh, hard courts uh, tournament in, in the 80s that started to attract all the guys as a lead up to the open. I, I remember going to, to, you know, seeing Becker and seeing Lendl so many times and seeing Connors and seeing McEnroe um, and, you know, and other players uh, during that era. And then Agassi was a mainstay, you know, as was Chang, if I recall, and others, you know, during the 90s. But, you know, my, the truth is, Mark, in recent years, and I think it coincides with sort of tennis in general. My interest in tennis has waned. I used to be a massive tennis fan. I can go back and tell you about, you know, Super Saturday at the Open in 84 with the three matches that went the distance, you know, with Cash and Lendl and then Martina and Chrissy and Connors and McEnroe, and the thing ended at 1130 at night. I was up early Sunday mornings for McEnroe, Borg in 80 and 81. Like, I remember all that stuff and I was so into it, but I'm not as much anymore. And I think the country as a whole, obviously it's not nearly as popular of a sport. So I apologize for not being totally up to speed. And when you said it's the fifth largest tournament in the U.S., is that prize money based? Everything, attendance, prize money, wow. quality of field. It's, it's all, yeah, there's the U.S. Open, which is a Grand Slam. There's three what's called 1,000 events which are Miami, Indian Wells, and Cincinnati, big events. And then we're the one 500-level event in the United States. Yeah, and and so, um, I mean, by, by the way, the one thing, and I talked about it on radio, and I think we mentioned it on the podcast, I've always known that we have here in D.C. a real serious and passionate tennis community. We always have. You know, we've produced a lot of really good players over the years, and now we've got the College Park facility that's, you know, produced Francis Tiafo and maybe more to come, and I know how passionate the tennis community um, is, but... Um, tell me about, and I want to I want to circle back to Rafa and the field that will be here waiting Rafa, um, you know, at Fitzgerald Tennis Center. But you you were a player. I mean, Mark was. I remember the last time we probably talked. You were like ranked four hundredth in the world in doubles, still at like forty something years old, right? Yeah, I uh, it was actually like nine hundred, but whatever. Um, Come on, and 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 yeah, I'll, I said I should take four hundred. You know, and the funny thing is, is actually I my prize money check I decided to frame instead of cash. I'd rather have it <laughs> as a memento than the cash in the bank. But um, 
Yeah, I, I later in life got into a bunch of uh, pro tournaments and doubles, and we won a couple matches, and and uh, one in Cancun, Mexico, and one in Calabasas, California, but I went to Ecuador and Kentucky. It was great fun. Who was your uh, partner? To be out there, it was like the George, uh, a bunch of different guys. A guy named Kevin Kim was a friend of mine, and we played together um, for a bunch of them, and then uh, and then a couple different people in Lexington. But it was a little bit of a, like, maybe more serious George Plimpton moment. Remember George Plimpton used to get out and play yes, of course. quarterback? And no, but you were better than Plimpton. Like, you were a real yeah, tennis yeah, yeah. player. No, was, yeah, yeah. No, I can play. I mean, I can, you know, especially doubles, no problem. And, you know, we were competitive in a lot of these matches. Um, and, uh, and But just to be out there and experiencing it, you know, and uh, and training and then being on the court was such a special experience. Um yeah, I'll tell you, as great as it was, and I loved every minute of it, when it was done, I was very happy to get back to my day job and something <laughs> that I'm really good at. So, um, uh, But it gives you a great appreciation to um, to get a chance to be on the court with some of the best players in the world. And, um, and yeah, and so, look, this tournament really – and I, what you said about the arc of your interest in tennis is not different from a lot of people in the United States. You know, the heyday of tennis with Connors and McEnroe and Courier and Chang – generated a huge amount of interest and then and board and then for a bunch of years it had a bit less i will say on the women's side because it really is the preeminent women's sport and so many great athletes venus and serena and you know graf and hingis and and just so many of them that it, it's strong on the women's side um but in recent years it, it, this is the golden age of tennis i mean it's it's mind-boggling i to think at the same time three guys could each set, tie the record for the most and they're both they're so different and they're so extraordinary in their own unique ways as people. And we've now really like feel like we know them because we've watched them for hours in Grand Slam finals. And so it's a golden age. And what's really exciting, Kevin, we should talk about the rest of the field at the, at the city open is this next generation is also super compelling. Like there's a whole set of next generation players who are coming up who are amazing players, super talented, also have great personalities, know how to engage in social media. And so the result of all this, plus the fact that tennis is the ultimate social distance sport, is that tennis by a mile had its best year in 2020 with participation growing 22% in the United States, which is mind-boggling. Like sports in general, and, and I was on the USTA board for six years, and tennis was flat to up 1% in participation. Most sports were down because people are home like watching social media and playing video games not out playing sports so we were kind of on a relative basis being up a little bit was pretty good but up 22 percent is a game changer it's the biggest increase since the 70s well was it pandemic driven because it got people yeah, out yeah. just outside to play a sport where you were naturally Absolutely. socially distanced it, it is it's the that is the catalyst and and so when you go to tennis clubs that used to be half full, they're packed all the time. You can't get on the court. You can go to any of them. They're all like that everywhere. And that's exciting. But, you know, one of the things I believe in, Kevin, um, and it's one of my motivations for doing the castles and now the city open, is I believe there's a virtuous cycle of participation and watching as a fan. And I believe that the more people play, the more they want to go out and watch it. The more they watch it, the more they want to go out and play. And it feeds off itself. And, you know, one of the things that got me thinking about this, and again, as a native, you can appreciate it. When you and I were kids in Chevy Chase and Bethesda, no one really played hockey. Very few people played hockey. But now with the Caps 
selling out the you know selling out the stadium for a decade. There's a massive short of of ice skating rinks. Everyone's playing hockey. We've seen that here. The Ovechkin effect. Well, the same thing happens in tennis. I've had so many families and people come to me after Castles matches and say what you said. I haven't played tennis in a while. I came to a match. I want to go play. Then they go play and then they come watch. And so, and Arthur Ashe knew this, and it was one of the reasons he wanted to start a tournament. He wanted it in a public park was because he knew that there's nothing like that moment where a kid gets to see someone up close and it aspires them and it aspire, and they aspire to be them. And so really at the core, my motivation for doing this and hopefully doing a really good job at it is that it'll help grow the sport, you know, and touch a lot of people in our town. Yeah, I, you know, it's funny because um, I, I didn't consider what the pandemic um, may have done to the sport. Um, I, you know, I didn't grow up in a country club, you know, and have that access. I was one of those people standing in line waiting for the on-the-hour switch for the public courts, which, you know, even now when you drive by, they're empty, right? I mean, I, it's, it's not what – there was a craze in this country in the 70s, 80s, and probably into the 90s where you would have to wait to get onto a public tennis court. I mean, there would be cars and people waiting and arguments. You and about, I the same. Yeah. Candy, so Candy Cane City, Candy Cane City can, Rock Creek Park. Uh, that's where I learned. Well, my, that huge switch. Of course. <laughs> And then you had you had all the lit you know lit courts at Cabin John you know and then uh, lots of courts like you know at at schools at elementary schools and high schools and 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 middle schools but um it is it's so ironic because while this sport I think you would agree that the popularity even with the increase is nowhere near where it used to be yet around the globe it's still wildly popular and we have as you described we've been living through the greatest era in the history of the sport. Three guys with 20 grand slams, and Sampras is fourth now, six short of the three at the top. I mean, and and yet I think America has sort of slept on this to a certain degree. Do you agree or disagree? Um, I think generally it's true that tennis is way more popular in other places in the world and people follow it more avidly. I think Grand Slams are still popular in the United States. The top players are well-known. You can look at their social media followings. You know, something like, um, I think there's been uh, 100 top 10 highest-paid female athletes in some list, Fortune or something, over the last decade. And something like 91 of them are tennis players. And on the men's side, three of the top 10. And why is that? Because... The platform that these guys and women have is un- it's unmatched. In fact, Kevin, I think about this all the time. I don't think there's any comparable in sports or maybe anywhere to the exposure an individual has who's playing in the finals of Grand Slams on a regular basis. It's you. There's no face mask. There may be no hat. It's just you and one other person for three or four hours to a global TV audience. And now we've seen these guys do it 30 times. There's nothing else like that in sports where an individual gets that kind of exposure. So it translates into these massive platforms, both economically and everything else. And so I do think that has hit the United States. And that's why your wife called you and wanted Rafa tickets, because he is an icon. He's one of those people in the world who has a one-word name, right? You say Rafa, you know what it is. And whether that's in, you know, the United States or anywhere in the world, he is Rafa, and he is Roger, and he is Novak. And they are Serena, and they are Venus. And so... At the top, 
it still is immensely popular. What we need to do in the States and what I'm really focused on doing in our community is making sure that people follow it more than, you know, follow it throughout the year. Well, you know, what you said about tennis is something that, you know, anybody that's ever really followed sports and been into sort of the business of sports has already, has always understood, you know, golfers and tennis players, that you know, tennis players in particular, you know, it's what Donald Dell and, you know, before him, I guess, um, Arnold Palmer's guy, um, McCormick, right? Mark McCormick. I, Mark McCormick. Yeah. Um, what they all realized is that the, the actual exposure, the facial exposure um, for hours upon hours close-ups, tight shots, the whole thing, it made for a much more um, endorsable um, athlete. Um, and, uh, and that's why Rafa and, and, and Federer and Djokovic and Serena and Naomi Osaka, to a m- wild extent, are always among the highest paid and endorsed athletes on the planet year in and year out. By the way, um, I'm just curious, like uh, in this era of the greatest tennis in history, You've probably been all over it and watched every match. And you're right. I do watch the Grand Slams. I watched Sunday morning. Did not watch Saturday morning. I think if Kerber had been in the final, I would have watched Saturday morning. Um, but I, um, who, who do you think, did Djokovic take a step on Sunday? Did he take that step to being, I don't want to say the front runner, but a lot of people will now start to say, especially with the you know the multi-surface, that he's the greatest player in the history of the game. Are you ready to Are you ready to take that leap? <laughs> I I think it will. In the end, it will be proven that he will have the most grand slams, and he'll lay claim to that. Now, what's tricky about it is, and his head-to-head record is superior, right? And as you said, the multi-surface. What's tricky about it is. He didn't hit uh, Roger at his peak, right? True. So Roger's peak came earlier. So that's not exactly a fair comparison. And by the way, you know what I've kept thinking about since Sunday is Roger's two match points in 2019 against Novak, including like a pretty easy forehand that he missed in the finals of Wimbledon. And if he does that, it's 21 Roger, 19 Novak right now. Right. If he literally makes that forehand. I mean, think about that. It sounds, it sounds like you're more of a Federer fan. No, I just, I love history, and I, I, I actually just am fascinated by how, like, little things uh, become big things. Um, and, look, I think they're all unique in their personalities. I do think that because he came third, that Novak has been a bit overshadowed on sort of a presence basis, and Roger's his guy, and Roth is his guy, and they're both extraordinary, but contrasting extraordinary. And then Novak's just different, you know? But Novak's also an amazing guy he does a lot of great things. And I think he's going to have his moment in the sun to be the face of the sport, you know, here for the next couple of years. Yet. I, I think that of the three, clearly um, he is, he has the, the lesser of the passionate fan bases. And, and I'm curious as to why you think that is. Well, I think it's, I think he came, third <laughs> i mean he's always been in their shadows like people are like oh well novak now is the best like i mean look at he's been winning well mackenroe came but, after borgen and connors but he had personality yeah i mean he novak has a different personality again they're all different roger is the most elegant one of the most elegant athletes in history yeah rafa has grit and fight that's like nothing you've ever seen and, you know, match with a humility that's pretty extraordinary. 
And, and you know, Novak's just an all-around, and he's a fighter. I mean, he grew up in war-torn Serbia, you know, playing in the bottom right. of a pool that didn't have water on it. And so that's it. But he's also become a leader in the sport, and he has a presence, and he's a very spiritual guy. I, I do think that part of it is it's just harder for him to find his lane because these guys are still around, you know, and he just hasn't had it. What's going to happen here sometime soon is one or two of the other guys will peel off and he's going to be the guy. And, and I think, you know, he'll, he'll, he'll rise um, in terms of his presence in the world. And it's already big. There's a ton of huge Novak fans all over the world. It's just, He's competing with two of the most famous and beloved athletes in history in his own sport. It's an interesting sport, too, in that, you know, there was a time in which 25 was old. And now Roger's on the verge of turning 40. Novak's probably in his, you know, early to mid-30s. Nadal is, what, 35, 36? Yeah. And and here... 37, 38. Yes, yeah, so yeah. It, it the sport has changed. Uh, obviously, you know, fitness and nutrition and all of that, you know, contributes. But I mean, Borg was done at twenty five, retired. McEnroe because he didn't work out and didn't practice. And by the way, he's my all time favorite athlete. Um, yeah. His career was cut significantly short, and it was always the young and up and comers that would take these guys out in their late twenties. You know, Sampras, you know, knocked out McEnroe in the U.S. Open when he made a run in, in ninety one or whatever it was and Sampras was 19 and and now the sport is reversed it's weird right it totally I mean a lot of it is fitness and people's ability to prolong their careers and their bodies but you know what I think is it the, the sort of the underpinnings of this one of the most fascinating things I ever heard a tennis player say was Thomas Burdick the Czech guy sure. at the finals of Wimbledon and he got off the court he had lost and in the interview right afterwards, he said, you know, I've made so much progress. I'm so happy with my game. He said, I'm finally at the point where I can actually concentrate for an entire match and not have lapses. And, you know, he said that is like that was the breakthrough. So the breakthrough for all these people is not can you hit a foreigner back and none of it. Because the reality is it's probably Sissy Pass can hit a better ground stroke than any of these guys. It's how well can you concentrate for this grueling three, four, five-hour match. How well can you play in those key moments? And that's what these guys who have the most experience and are legends, that's what that's the difference. That's the entire difference. And it's why that even though the up-and-coming players may be more athletic and stronger and faster and everything else, they lose because in those moments, the top guys rise and they don't have as many down moments. They keep their level longer than the other guys. It's interesting, sports in general, and I've talked about the NBA many times in the past. The NBA, in many ways, is an old man sport. I mean, you have to you have to lose before you can win. Obviously, we're seeing um, a unique finals this year, but for the most part, older teams, guys that are physically mature, you know, more than a 19, 20, 21, 22-year-old, and more importantly, really understand the game. And by the way, you know, don't get um, to the point where – uh, you know, they don't know what to do next. Um, uh, and, and tennis is sort of the same way. And, you know, we just saw Phil Mickelson, you know, win the PGA Championship at 50 years old. By the way, you mentioned that there are some really exciting up-and-coming Americans in men's tennis. You know, I watched some of Wimbledon, and I saw, you know, Peter Korda's son, um, playing yeah. well is he one of the like who are the guys that legitimately Mark have a chance 
to be a number one kind of a player, win Grand Slams, which it's been a long time since anybody other than the big three have won, won Grand Slams. But uh, hell, I mean, was the last American to win a Grand Slam Roddick's U.S. Open? Yeah, it was. It was, right? Yeah. It was. On the men's side, obviously. Right. Uh, Naomi and Serena, and there's been a bunch on the um, women's side and Kenan. I mean, on the women's side, we've had a lot. On the men's side. It's Andy. Yeah. Um, yeah. So look, there's a, there's, and coming this summer to the city open, there's, we, we did a poster and we had 16 spots and we really were struggling to figure out who to exclude because there were so many, if you know the sport, and even if you don't, so many great players coming. Um, in terms of American tennis, yeah, Sebastian Corda, I think, is really good. You know, Taylor Fritz is really good. Um, Riley Opalco is good. Francis is really good. Um, you know, will any one of them be number one in the world? That remains to be seen. Um, you know, I think we all just want them in the final weekend of Grand Slam. Right. That would be a good thing, and that's the next step. But but outside of them, in Canada, you have Dennis Shapovalov, who made the semis of Wimbledon. He's yeah. coming. Felix Auger-Aliassime, amazing guy. He could be number one in the world. He's working. He's coming, and his coach is Rafa's uncle, Uncle Tony. Um and then we have, uh, we have Nick Kyrgios coming back. And I will say that's really a part of what this tournament now is, is the experience we had with Nick in 2019. I mean, that, the highlights of that week are still shown endlessly on social media and other tennis sites because it was so amazing what he did and the spirit in which he did it. You know, he went before match point in his last three matches into the stands and asked the fan where to serve and then did it and won the match, including in the finals. And 15 minutes before, well, he did this every match, but 15 minutes before the finals, he was playing ping pong with the ball kids in the player oh, area. Wow. And Nick, Nick won the tournament in Nick's way, and he loves this tournament. It was one of the best weeks of his life. So he's coming back. Um, all these other guys. And then we have, like, you know, Kay Nishikori and Milos Raonic, who've won the tournament, or are coming back and um, it just literally goes on and on and on. And, and, um, and I still think we have still four or five wild cards to give. I have a feeling um, there's going to be some, even some additional big players coming. And so whether it's Rafa there or any of these other players, every, every day is going to be amazing this summer at the city open and just literally now in three weeks. All right, stay right there, Mark. Um, We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, I will ask you whether or not, there's a chance that we get more than Rafa. Would Fed or Djokovic be interested in coming and playing in this tournament now that Rafa's here? Uh, We'll do that, and you'll answer that right after these words from a few of our sponsors. Mark Ein uh, joining us on the podcast. Mark is the owner of the Washington Castles. He owns the City Open. He's the man responsible for bringing Rafa Nadal to town uh, beginning on July 31st. So, is there any chance that Fed or, or, or Djokovic would come? <laughs> I Not this year. I mean, I, I not this year. Uh, but, well... Maybe I shouldn't say never. I mean, I you know, Novak just said he may not go to Tokyo, so I don't know if he decides that he's not going to Tokyo. Would he decide to come? I, maybe. I mean, it's, I guess that's possible, but we haven't had any discussions with him. Uh, but I, there's a lot of other really top players who are waiting to see if they go to Tokyo and if they, or if they lose in Tokyo and they want to come. So I'm pretty sure we'll get a couple additional big players, but frankly, 
I'm more worried about how do we get more fans in to see who we've got than figuring out who else to bring at the moment. Yeah, well, um, it's going to be um, it's going to be quite a week, and I I um, you know I know one of the things that I said on the podcast because whenever I do talk about this tournament that I am familiar with over the years, uh, you know, having um, been you know a fan of it and gone to it so many times, is I do know, and I it, I don't think you could refute this that. If you get one of those weeks in our city where it's oppressive, 97 degrees, you know, 95% humidity, this is something that always becomes part of the conversation with players in the past and, and you know, uh, reasons that players have passed on this tournament in the past, right? Yeah, I mean, I think when you and I were ball kids, it was different because the matches were like you and I were out there at 1 in the afternoon and they realized... I don't know if it was 10, 15 years ago, we should start playing at Fair. four. Yeah. So, 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 so that is a huge improvement. There's more match courts. So they, so we're not playing in the middle of the day, um, other than qualifying. And actually the, the semis are late, you know, still not at noon, but in the afternoon. So, um, so most matches are at night. And then, you know, Kevin, I had that same experience, frankly, as a fan. And so one of the things we did in 19, for the first time, we built a massive air conditioned food hall, and we brought in some of the best restaurants and and um, alcohol partners um, to create this fantastic indoor area that fans could come and get out of the sun, which they never had. VIPs had that, but general fans didn't. And so we have this thing called Market Square, and we have like Duke's Grocery and Dolce oh, awesome. Ice Cream and Mama Fuku. And so that I think was something that fans really appreciated. That was long a long time coming at the event. So. To, you know, if you get one of those hot days, there's a place to go where you can cool off and have good food. Well, Duke's Grocery has a hell of a burger, um, so hopefully you have that uh, on the menu, and maybe uh, maybe Jose's helping you a little bit with the with the food as well. Um, yeah. I, I wish. Oh, you know what? I did. I was curious. So, what happened to the women's tournament? Yeah. So when we bought the the when we got the men's event. We, um, the women's event was rented. It was a sanction that was leased from a, another company called Octagon. And they decided that, um, there's this woman, Iga Swatek, who's a top person who's from Poland, and they wanted to have a tournament in Poland. So they moved it to Poland, um, which it was really disappointing to us. And I really want to bring a full women's tournament back. And I have a deep commitment. To women's tennis, that's really what we've highlighted at the castles more than anyone with Mar- with Venus, Serena, Martina Hingis. We had Naomi Osaka. And so we're doing a women's invitational this year, which is going to be amazing. We have Coco Goff, the Australian Open uh, finalist, Jen Brady, um, our 2019 champion, Jess Pagula, and one more player. So we're going to highlight some of the best women in the world with Coco, who's another becoming another one-word icon. Um, and it's great. Over time, I'd love to figure out a way to get a full women's tournament back, and we're talking to a lot of people, and hopefully we'll solve for it. But until then, I actually think the format of what we're going to do this summer is going to be great, and people can see some of the best women in the world uh, at the City Open. Now, I remember some of those tournaments at the Smith Center, and you know, because there was an <laughs> event that came through. They, they played it at Mason a couple of years um, totally. at the, you know, at the Patriot Center. Um, and you just you met- know that tournament at the that tournament at GW, 
Gosh, I didn't, I don't even know my parents knew, but I was a ball kid at the event and it actually killed my GPA that year because I kind of skipped school for a week to go be a ball kid. Right, because it wasn't during the summer. Yeah. Right. Um, exactly. By the way, you just mentioned um, Jess Pagula, um, and I just looked it up. She won the last event here. Is yep. that, and I don't know this, at, at the answer to this, is that the Buffalo Bills um, owner's daughter? It is. Okay. It is. Um, so Terry is. Pagula, and I forget, t- I forget Terry's yeah. wife's uh, name, but they're wife's co-owners. Name. Yep. Yep, um, and, and they own the sa- they own the Sabres, and... Um, but, you know, look, she's an amazing player in her own right. And, and by the way, Kevin, that's another one where her breakthrough, that was her first victory. I don't remember what she was ranked when she won this two years ago, um, but it's probably in the 60s, 50s, 60s, 70s. She's now like 22 in the world. She's had a ton of top wins. That tournament was a huge cast, just like it was for Medvedev. And it was interesting. She kept posting that she was sorry she couldn't come back to defend her championship in D.C. because we didn't have an event last year because it meant so much to her. And so we're thrilled to have her. And, yeah, she does, she does come from an amazing family, but in and of her, in her own right, she's becoming a really extraordinary player. And in, she's an extraordinary person who's similarly humble and fights hard and, um, and uh, is just a really impressive person. Uh, best of luck. I actually have this time truly one last question, and it has nothing yeah, to do with the tournament right. or anything else. So I'm yeah. just curious, you know, for you as a sports owner, you own, you know, the Washington Castles. You're one of the sports owners in town. Um, you know, over the last year with the issues that Dan Snyder's had and the investigation that was ongoing with Beth Wilkinson, et cetera, and all of the, you know, hypotheticals about would he be forced to sell the team and, you know, will he be taking on new investors or, you know, will the minority investors be bought out by him or, or other people? I'm curious if the, if the football team ever became available <laughs> Would you a be interested and b be capable of like putting together a group to buy it? <laughs> um, well, I don't think that's ever going to happen. Um, uh, look, I ended up doing the city open because I was a ball kid like <laughs> you, and it was such an important part of my life. And it was a, it was I don't want to say once in a lifetime opportunity, but it was an extraordinary life opportunity, and I'm so grateful I had the chance to do that. Similarly, the Redskins were a massive part of growing up. And, you know, I was, I didn't have the ability, but I was in and around looking at it when it came up. So, you know, when Dan did it. Um, and, you know, I wish that, I wish it was at a time which would be more like now where I could put together something. Um, because how could you not, as a kid growing up in this area, if that opportunity ever came, how could you ever not consider doing it? But I don't think it's going to come up. Um, Every time it does, there's a lot of conversations by a lot of people. Uh, you know, is it something that, I mean, I think you'd have an unbelievable amount of interest, both from people who live here and around the world. But I, I just don't think it's going to ever happen. Um, but I will tell you, Kevin, it is, it is like, it's just such an amazing, like, life. It's just such an amazing thing to think you can go from being the ball kid to the owner of the tournament or, <laughs> from a fan to the owner. And so, and I think it also gives you that it always, you always lead with the fan perspective and you always think about what's the experience for the fan. I always think about what's the experience for the kid, like what's the experience for the Mark Ine, you know, in 2021, like how's this going to touch him and how are we going to make sure that they can come to the matches? And so, 
and just to maybe close it out. And that's why when I heard your podcast, I reached out to you to say, let me come on. And I appreciate you being open-minded and, uh, and having such a great conversation about this amazing event that's been such a big part of our community and is going to have, you know, an extraordinary 52nd year here in, in August. Well, I was going to reach out anyway. This is a big, big story, and um, I'm thrilled for you. It's going to be great to have him here. Thanks for doing this. It's good to catch up. Uh, congratulations. Um, it's a huge get, and uh, it'll be a fun week for sure. I mean, it, it, for people that are there, but uh, also you're going to draw a much bigger television audience. By the way, will that be a tennis channel product that week? It is. It is. It is a tennis channel product, but it'll also be simulcast the semis and the finals on uh, JLA here in town. Oh, okay, so, that's awesome. Um, it'll be free over the air. Yeah, yeah, which we're excited about. I think that'll be great. I, I'm assuming someone somewhere is going to do watch parties this summer since it will be hard to get the ticket in town and they can watch it on WJLA. Yeah, it's going to be great. Um, thanks, Mark. Best of luck uh, with everything. Talk soon. Thanks. Look forward to seeing you and your wife there this summer. Mark Ine, everybody, uh, the man responsible for uh, keeping this City Open tennis tournament not only alive, but attracting um, one of the biggest stars uh, globally on the sports landscape, Rafa Nadal, to D.C. at the end of this month. Uh, that's it for today. Back tomorrow, I think, with Tommy. Um, and if not, we'll have somebody else on the show. Have a great day.